Hello. Welcome. Are you dry? Man, wasn't that awesome this morning? Ooh, love it. So are you guys ready for a Bible study? Me too, I'm so excited. Thanks for coming. Um, Pastor Scott, I get to deliver the message today. Pastor Ray and Nancy and several others from this church are hiking the Grand Canyon right now. They're having a good time, so pray they're not encountering any flash floods down there. God could part the seas there. So we're continuing in our teaching series, Freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. How does he do that? He does that through the power of the gospel. And that's the title of our teaching today. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3. You can turn there in your Bibles. If you're an internet person, internet's down because of the rain, like all over the building and probably the neighborhood, so I apologize for that. But uh, that's okay. All the scriptures and everything are right up here on the, on the screen. So we're looking at Paul's love letter. Love letter? He's hammering these people. It's not a love letter. It certainly is, and we'll talk about why that is. So to this point, um, Paul's been making an argument defending the gospel of grace through pretty much his own experience. And you'll see that he turns from his own experience to giving a scriptural argument, a theological argument. And I think that's important for us to see that because sometimes uh, we all have a story, right? Paul certainly has a story. He used to be a Christian killer, right? So people know things about us. They perceive things about how we live. And so it's important that the gospel that we preach and the gospel that we live out are consistent. And if there's some inconsistencies people see either of our past or our present, what's in question? Well, we're in question, but also our gospel is in question. So we as Christians, when we share the gospel, we need to have confidence that the gospel stands on its own. And when we share it, we have to make sure that the hero of the story is Jesus Christ and not us. Because the power of the gospel is in Christ's goodness, not my goodness. So it's really important that we understand that. So like I said, it's pretty hard hitting here the way Paul starts out. One commentator I was reading about says that this portion could be titled, Dear Stupid. (laughs) And so if you're a redneck, this could be like, here's your sign. (laughs) Right? And so um, it really speaks to me. This is, you know, a lot of people have said, uh, you know, love God's word. I'm like, yeah, I need it the most. And so that's why I think God had me teach this one because I need this one the most. Sometimes I get all fleshy and think that the gospel that I share is based on my goodness and, and, uh, and I forget what, where my benefits come from, where, where God comes in and that this is by faith that I believe in the gospel and it's based on his goodness and what he's done. And uh, I forget what Psalm 103, 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, let us not forget his benefits. And so let's pray before we get started and look to the one that gives us all of our benefits. God, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for this beautiful day, the rain. And uh, Lord, we thank you for new mercies today and the assurance that they are never ending. God, I thank you for each and every person here. You give us a heartbeat. You give us air in our lungs, and you give us that air in our lungs that we might sing your praises and make much of you. And so, God, I know that you've brought each and every person here today through your sovereignty for your good purposes. And God, uh, you know better than we do that uh, 
We're desperate without you. And we ask you, God, for your forgiveness, for forgetting, and even sometimes looking away from the grace that you give us through Jesus Christ, through the truth of your word. So God, it's in that desperation that we repent and that we ask you and cry out to you that please, through your word, through your spirit, and the foolishness of my teaching, to teach each and every heart here what you want us to hear, that your good and perfect will might be done in our lives and through our lives. And we ask it in the all-sufficient name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm needing some cough drops here, so bear with me. I'm going to jump right into it. I'm going to read through Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 14, and I'll stop periodically make some comments. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let, you, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles, works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed in God and was counted to him as righteousness? So he's starting off really hardcore. He's kind of getting in their face a little bit, and he's saying that Christ was portrayed as crucified. Paul's ministry and his proclaiming of the gospel has been in public. He's labored hard. He's not changed the gospel that he's preaching, and it's always been in public. And by the way, also Christ was crucified in public. And so he goes on and he asks these four rhetorical questions, and he's calling the Galatians to task because they appear to begin their walk with Christ, their, their salvation in Christ through faith that's given to them by the Spirit. And now that it appears that they're turning now and ending their faith, starts with Christ, but I'm going to make it good with my, my flesh through things like circumcision and, and things like that, the traditions of men. And so he's calling them to task and asking them about their vanity in that. And so speaking of God, he says, does he who supplies you the spirit who is God and works miracles among you who is God do so by works or by the hearing of faith, just as Abraham? And he goes on to talk about Abraham Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the message here is that the gospel is not a new plan. God didn't look down and go, oops, they're not getting it. I guess I have to come up with something new. It says no. It says that the scriptures, which is God's word, and so God is really preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham and said those who are of faith are best along with Abraham. Abraham had faith, and so we're not saved because of Abraham. We're saved along with Abraham when we have that same faith goes on in verse 10 to say, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteousness shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Two key words here, abide and, actually it's three words, abide and do them. If we're going to rest in the law, which is what abide means, we have to live according to every single letter of the law. And because of our sinfulness, we don't even have the capacity to do that. And so as Ray pointed out last week very clearly, like an x-ray machine shows us that we have broken bones, the x-ray machine doesn't fix our broken bones. It just shows us that we have broken bones and they need to be fixed. It's the same thing with the law. The law doesn't save us. It shows us that we need to be saved and we need a Savior to do that. And it goes on in verse 13 and 14 to tell us, that the Savior came and did that. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, and Christ was hung on a tree for you and I. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's powerful word to us this morning. So until now, Paul has been addressing his audience, these Galatians, as brothers. Kind of an endearing way to address them, right? So now he changed this to something less formal. And also, not only less formal, but a little biting. He says, Galatians, but not just Galatians, foolish Galatians. You know, my mother used to, uh, when she'd get angry with me, when she knew that I knew better and I wasn't acting according to the way I was raised, she'd get formal with me and she'd call me by my full name, Reuben Scott Bamelli. You guys didn't know my name was Reuben, did you? You're not allowed to call me that. Just my mother when she's mad. So he gets impersonal with them and kind of calls them out, calls them fools. This word foolish that he says is, means senseless with an added moral reproach. It's not someone who can't control their moral behavior. It's someone who's not dumb or ignorant, but one who has intelligence but refuses to think about what they're doing in their foolishness. I've heard the question, what are you, stupid? I've heard other people ask the question, you know, you might have a child or a loved one or a friend and you just know that they're doing the wrong thing. They're hurting themselves, they're hurting someone else, or they're just doing something flat out wrong. And you ask them, what are you, stupid? Now, you don't expect them to answer you and go, well, well yes, I am stupid. <laughs> no, it's a rhetorical question and the answer is really obvious and that's what Paul is doing here. And his tone of rebuke is through, because of his frustration and his amazement by seeing that the Galatians, being there with them, laboring through the gospel with them, that they're turning 180 degrees away from their faith through the spirit, through faith through their flesh. And so... Paul's been laboring. This isn't some fly-by mission trip for him. He's not going around handing out Bibles to the adults and candy to the kids and saying, God be with you. No, he's done it year after year after year. He went and preached this gospel to the Jews. He went to the Gentiles and preached it, and then we went back to the Jews and preached it. It's through a revelation, so he got his orders from God, and he's just really frustrated, and he's, but he's also really sure of his calling. So he's reminding the Galatians how they received the faith, how they, uh, they together labored through this. They experienced miraculous things by the hearing of the gospel, through their faith in the gospel, through the spirit of the gospel. Paul, it's like Paul saying, we were both there together. What are you thinking? And so that's why his language is a little bit snarky. You know? Did someone bewitch you? 
Because I was there with you, and it appeared that you really got it, and, and God was doing some amazing things. And so someone must have done something to you, because you can't be that dumb. And he really gets on them. And so absolutely sure that he's not preaching in vain, uh, Paul calls them to task, and he asks them to consider their own vanity. And it's good for us to do that. It's good for us to call each other on the gospel we live compared to the gospel we say that we believe. And we do that in love. Paul knows the value of the gospel and the value of the Christ of the gospel. And he's, in his confident assurance, this is fueling his frustration and his concern and his displeasure. He's not being unloving. He might be being a little bit harsh, but sometimes it requires harshness for someone to wake up. He thought the Galatians really had this true faith in the true gospel, in the true Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he understands that if they didn't get that, souls might be at stake. So he's concerned, he's upset. And if their souls are not at stake and they're living out their gospel in vanity, which is a, it's, it's a true belief, he's concerned for his love for the gospel because onlookers might see the gospel that they're living out and miss the gospel that they say they believe and their souls may be at stake. So it's a true love for the people that he's preaching to and the gospel that he's preaching. And so he sees and realizes that they're showing that they've turned to living out a powerless gospel. And this is our first fill in the blank, number one. Righteousness absent of the gospel is powerless, and power absent of righteousness is Christless. Now, we intentionally used uppercase and lowercase letters for this particular fill-in because it's important to know the difference. Lowercase r righteousness is man's righteousness, man's goodness. If, we try, and, if I try and apply my human goodness to God's big G gospel, it's powerless, because that's not where the power comes from. It doesn't come from me. It comes from the goodness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. And so if my man power, small p, is absent of God's righteousness, and I try and live out the gospel uh, through my power, it's, I'm trying to do it in a Christless way. So that's what it says. Power absent of righteousness, big R righteousness, is Christless. Some of the scariest words in the Bible are come from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 where he, he's talking and he's saying that uh, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, which means when we pass from time into eternity, are people going to get into heaven? And they're going to say, but Lord, we prophesy in your name. We cast out demons in your name. So there was an apparent power and an apparent truth that they were living out. But he's going to turn to them, and what does he say? He's going to say, I never knew you, which means you never knew me. Depart from me. That's scary. But what's really interesting is what he calls them. He gives them a name. He calls them workers of lawlessness. And so I thought we weren't saved by the law. We're not. But Christ did not come to eliminate the law. He came to fulfill the law. The law cannot be filled by me. It has to be filled by Christ, fulfilled by Christ. And that's how I come by my righteousness, by Christ's righteousness and his ability to fulfill the law because I can't, I can't do it myself. 
We have to understand that Christ is the incarnation of the gospel. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In fact, faith itself is a gift because I have not in my selfishness the capacity to even think about such things, let alone believe in such things. So God, through his spirit, gives us the faith to believe his word and to live out the gospel through Christ. And so this is what they began to do. They began with faith in Christ, but they've turned to their flesh. So what was missing? What was missing is they underestimated Christ and they overestimated their flesh. And so I understand, and I know that all of you do, most of you probably do, is that Christ dwells in me. But what you also understand is that we all have our list of struggles, that there's struggles in me, and I don't know how to take this what's called imputed righteousness, what God gave me through Christ, to live it out in imparted righteousness, which was taking the righteousness Christ gave me and employing it in my life in such a way that I could live out in truth and have this life to the fullest that Christ promises. Because I struggle all the time. Don't you struggle? I struggle with anger. I struggle with lust. I struggle with greed. I struggle with all kinds of things. I struggle with my sin. And I don't have to go on and on because each and every single one of us has our own list. You got a list? Yes, we certainly do. So how do I move from imparted righteousness to, or excuse me, imputed righteousness to imparted righteousness? Do you want to know how? Me too. It's a matter of knowing and valuing what you have in Jesus Christ and in the power of the gospel. Tim Keller gives a great example of this, knowing what we have and the value and the power of it. And he uses this illustration from the Lord of the Rings. You guys, have you seen the Lord of the Rings? A lot of people have. You might have read the books. So there's this character named Bilbo Baggins. And then little Frodo, guy with the hairy feet and the big ears. Right, And so Frodo's going to go off on this dangerous journey, and Bilbo, the wiser and the wealthier one, wants to give him a gift to prepare him for his journey. And he gives him this coat of mail. A coat of mail is a piece of armor that's flexible. It's worn close to the skin. It's links of metal that are all meshed together that if someone stabs you or strikes you with a blade, that it won't penetrate your skin. It's for protection. It's a coat of armor. And so not thinking much of it, not knowing the value of what he's been given, Frodo's like, okay, and he puts it on under his tattered, little tattered coat, and he's off on his journey. And so on his journey, he's with a fellow traveler who starts talking about Bilbo Baggins. Now, Bilbo is a wealthy, wealthy man. But he said that there was one thing that he had that was more valuable than everything that he had. And Frodo's ears perked up a little bit. And he said it was a coat of mail. Then his big ears perked up a little bit even more. And he said it wasn't any coat of mail. It was coat of mail made of mithril. Mithril in the kingdom of this story was the most precious metal that there was. It was a thousand times more precious than gold. But it wasn't only a thousand times more precious. It was a thousand times more beautiful when the light hit it. But also a thousand times more durable than any metal that there was. And it was a thousand times lighter. And so... This person that was describing this coat of mail and how valuable it was, he said it was more valuable than all the property in the kingdom put together. And Frodo was just staggered and he was stopped in his tracks and he held his side 
and he felt the coat of mail that was made from mithril under his coat, and he just was staggered because he never knew the power and the protection and the preciousness of what he'd been given until that point. And so the example goes on to say that sometimes when we lead people to the Lord, we tell them by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you now possess the Spirit of God. And without some intense and accurate explanation of people like that, uh, of that to people who have accepted Christ, they might walk away going, that's nice. That's nice. What's nice? I got the Spirit of God. It's like the little bag of almonds when you see at the, the wedding that you walk away with. You want to take that with you? No, that's okay. It's nice, though. Right? We don't understand as Christians, we have the very power of God covering us. We walk around with it. It's got power. It's got preciousness. It's an amazing, amazing concept. And so what difference does it make in our lives? Well, if it's not precious to us, it's not going to make a difference. What's precious about it? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You mean God lives within me? Yes. You mean to tell me that there's an internal power living and available to me in me right now and in the days to follow? Yes. What difference does it make in your life? And so when we move from imputed righteousness to imparted righteousness, it's called spiritual growth and realizing our spiritual power. Fill in number two. Experiencing spiritual growth and power is found by regularly spending time to understand and know who and what has been given to you in the gospel. And there's a process to that. It starts by studying. We call this the word all the time, but we might forget whose word it is. It's God's word. God has given us his word, not on paper and ink, but through his spirit that we could read the paper and ink and can penetrate our hearts because it tells us about him. It tells us how great he is and how we need him. It tells us about his son and, and, and what he's done for us. And it tells us about the power of the gospel. So we have to devour this book and allow God's spirit to work through his word to penetrate our hearts so we can again find the full life that Christ promises us through his power, not our own. In fact, that we will make less of our power and more of his power. And so moving from imputed to imparted requires us to study. It also requires us to worship. We come here together and we sing praises to God and we pray to God and we study God's word together. That's all known as a worship. That's why they call it a worship service. But God's word says that he inhabits the praises of his people. So it's not just us here, is it? Who else is here? God's here. He is? Yes, he is. Oh, it better sit up straight. No, he's here. He's here. He loves you. He wants us to seek him out. But the most important part of this, moving from imputed to imparted, is by the testing of your faith. James talks about it in, in James chapter 1. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What James is telling us is that we need to move towards our trials and troubles, not run away from them because 
if we do have faith, it's not the amount of faith that we have, it's what we've invested our faith in. Because God's word does say that we could have faith the size of a mustard seed and it'll do what? It'll move mountains. So it's not what we, how much faith we have, it's what we have faith in. So we have to test the investment of our faith and it's gonna produce this steadfastness because God's word is true and he is powerful on our behalf. And so what does it do? When we test our faith, when we move towards our problems in the power of the gospel, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow, that's powerful. So when I accept Jesus, is everything going to go perfect? No. How many people, when they've accepted Christ, everything is just perfect? Skippity-doo-dah-day. Nope, doesn't happen. Evil is real. There's a lady in the first service, she said, perfect. And I said, you liar. <laughs> but she meant that Christ was perfect. And so she was right in raising her hand. So what does it go on to say? You know, sometimes I get to this point, that depending on what trial I'm encountering, I say, you know, I really don't know what, what God's up to here. I have no idea what he's trying to teach me. You guys ever been there? Yeah. So what is, it gives us the answer right here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Do you think if you approach God in humility, wanting to know more about him, want to experience him more, he's going to say, I'm busy now. I've already told you all that stuff. Suck it up and flesh up. No, he's going to give us wisdom to just trust him and to know him more. But we have to do that in a particular way. It says, but let him ask in faith without with no doubting. Now, I'm not saying not to doubt yourself. It's good to doubt yourself and not to doubt God. And in faith, we need to pursue him with no doubts um, because if we do doubt him, um, we're going to be like waves of the sea that are driven and tossed by the wind. Sometimes we go to God and we say, God, I'm, I'm really trusting you here. I'm finally, I'm going to give it over to you. Okay, I'm going to trust you with this until... I see that you're not handling this the way I would. I'm going to have to take back over because, sorry, you're just not doing it the way I'd do it. We do that because we forget the power of the gospel. And then we end up singing this country song. Life spinning out of control. We're on a blacktop and death is imminent. And we say, Jesus, take the wheel. What did you take it from him in the first place for? It's his wheel. We're not God. God's not our co-pilot. We're not his co-pilot. We're passengers, right? And so we have to understand that. And we have to know that trusting the gospel in faith is the only way to be tested. Don't test him in your disobedience. Not recommended. Test God. Test his obedience. Test the power of the gospel in our obedience, in our trust in him without doubting that he's going to do what he says he's going to do because he is who he says that he is. So have you come to grips? Have you been staggered by who it is that you have that dwells in within you when you're a Christian? J.I. Packard puts it this way. Have you been melted with the spiritual understanding of the glory that has come to you? If we're Christians, we have the third person of the Trinity dwelling in us. What's your daily response? That's nice. No, you're not getting it. You're not thinking. 
So are you questioning your own gospel? Are you questioning your own thinking? People get bent out of shape when, when people question our Christianity, right? What do you mean? I'm not a Christian. Well, you're kind of living contrary to what you say you believe. So um, the, we don't need other people to do that because the Bible does that all day long. If you're pouring your face into it, it's going to convict you and go, oh, yeah, I guess I'm not living that way. And so it says right here in verse 3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Which means you began with Jesus. Why are you now ending with you? That's convicting for me for sure. And so, number three, becoming a Christian, and I should have put a longer space in here and changed the notes a little bit. Becoming a Christian begins and continues by receiving the Spirit by faith. Beginning with the Spirit and continuing to recognize that we have the Spirit by faith. And we ought to regularly question our own Christianity and the gospel that we are living. We shouldn't wait for people to question our Christianity. We ought to be questioning it every single day right? But if someone does question our Christianity, here's what the power of the gospel will do in you. It'll allow you to respond appropriately. You can consider what they're saying. And if what they're saying is true in humility, because you know the power of the gospel, you can say, thank you so much. You're absolutely right. I'm not living according to the gospel. I'm living on my own flesh, not the power of Jesus Christ. Thank you for allowing God to use you to point that out to me because I got blind spots and I need Jesus and we all need Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus. The power of the gospel will allow you to respond that way instead of having you make excuses for why you are the way you are or having you minimize the gospel, which both are doing the same thing. And so we need to listen to the spirit that we've been given through God's word and through other people and the completeness of God's word. We can't chop up scripture and just let what speaks to us and serves us be the truth. Let me give you a couple examples. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes, I'm saved. I'm righteous. I got this down. When God looks down here and looks at me, we're good. Go, Scotty. Go, Scotty. It's your birthday. Go, Scotty. No, I have to read on where it says, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift from God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. When it comes to my salvation and anything good in me, it's God in me, not me. And so I have to remember that. I have to look at the completeness of God's word. Ephesians 3, 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Woo! Better get a reserve sign out there for executive pastor, Right? You got life problems? I got all the answers. In fact, we're all ministers of the gospel. We can get really religious and, and tell people, you got problems, you're really struggling, come up here where I am. I'll share the truth with you. If anybody responds to God's word in the gospel, when I share it to them, God has done a supernatural thing in them. God has revealed himself to them, not me. It can't be me because I'm not good. How about this one, Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and it is, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When we're religious 
and we misbehave or someone calls us on something, shame does something in us. And in our sinfulness, we take shame and we either try and fit in by saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but we can tell dirty jokes. God will forgive me. Or we try and justify our actions and look good. And so if the gospel, the power of the gospel is going to change me, it cannot be hindered by my shame that makes me try and fit in or look good because it's not contingent on my righteousness because I'm not good. Does that make sense? So salvation by works, it works in a particular way and it does particular things and it says something about what you believe. Salvation by works is denying or minimizing the necessity of the grace through the gospel that you live. Not the gospel that you preach, but the gospel that you live. And in minimizing that and doing so, it appears that to you, the crucifixion of Christ isn't adequate or really even necessary. It's a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. If what Christ has done for us is the only means of atonement, which it is, that's the gospel, then it is in Christ alone that the power of the gospel is found and realized. And we have to look at the scripture that we're reading today and understand it's not a new plan. God, like I said, didn't say, oops, better try something different. It says here, we are saved the same way as Abraham was saved. That's your fill-in. We are saved the same way Abraham was saved, by faith. Now those two words, by faith, are packed full of, full of truth. And we're going to review what are called the five solas in a minute. But I want to address this same way as Abraham first. Paul talks about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. Abraham was a man. He had challenges. Would you believe that, right? But he didn't waver because he had challenges. Why? Because he had the promises of God. And he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. When we move more towards our problems, trust in God, trust the promises of God, then we will find out that God is who he is he says he is, and he'll do what he says he's going to do. It says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God is a man of his word. His power is true. Ours is fleeting and failing. And it says, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, uh, Jesus our Lord. So no one's going to be counted righteousness, righteous for Abraham's faith except for Abraham. No one's going to be counted righteous for your faith except for you. We can be an example of that faith and people can come to believe in Jesus Christ because of the power of the gospel they see in us, but it's not because of us. It's along with us, as it says about Abraham in those verses 6 through 9. So let's look at right now um, the five solas. Um, so these are really essential for our Christian beliefs. As I said before, this is known as the word, uh, but don't forget whose word it is. It's God's word. 
So when it comes to the truths of life and how we figure it out and how, we're, how we come to know God and how he does this in it, it's through scripture alone. That's what sola scriptura means. Scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. <coughs> There's lots of other books and stuff that we can look to when we have our problems and stuff, but they ought to be filtered through the highest authority of scripture to make sure that it's consistent with God's word, Right? So this is our highest authority, and we have to have faith that it's God's word. Sola fide, faith alone. We are saved through faith, not just through faith, but faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so we can't just say, well, I have faith. I have a lot of faith. Well, I don't have very much faith today. It's what we invest our faith in, as I said, and it's in Christ alone. And then there's sola gratia. This is grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. We cannot even understand what this book says or come to faith in Jesus Christ apart from God's grace alone. We can't accept the gift of Jesus and salvation wrapped up in a nice pretty box and put a bowl of flesh on it to make it look better. We can't do that because anything that's added to God's grace is not a compliment, it's a compromise. And we have to understand that. And so we have to understand that solus Christus, it's Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord and Savior and King. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He's our highest authority. No one else was nailed on the cross except for him. It was one person on the cross that made any difference for us, and that was him alone. It's Christ alone. So when we believe in this authority of this book and we have faith alone in Jesus Christ and understand that it's through God's grace alone, then we're gonna live a life that gives glory to God alone, which is what sola deo gloria means, to, glo to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone as Christians. It's really important. And when it comes to these things, yes, we get together corporately to learn about these things, but we have to believe them individually. Because what I believe in my faith about what, who God is and what he's done and the assurance that I have in that and the value I have in that, that's going to paint a picture of what I call a gospel inventory, a personal gospel inventory. You've heard us uh, say some, uh, use some statements around here. You've heard lots of people say them. They're not exclusive to us. One is that Jesus had to die. Another one is Jesus wanted to die. And another one is that you were chosen by God. So I want to go through these things and um, talk about the implications that if you do believe these things, this is what you might believe. And if you don't believe these things, this is my, maybe what you believe. Now, I have a choice. I can either read this whole book to you. We'll be here for a really long time. Or I could just take the ones that I've picked out that are, uh, I think, really important to think about. So let me do the smaller one. And these aren't, these aren't all, God's, God's word reveals all of them to us, but here's, here's how we start. Do you believe that Christ had to die? If so, you understand that there is a standard for God's perfect justice and a demand for God's justice to be satisfied when that justice is violated. You understand you are sinful beyond human redemptions and then you have no moral capital to pay your debt. And you understand that you can't earn moral capital. You understand payment requires perfect sacrifice and Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice with the only capital necessary to satisfy God's justice. You understand why the gospel of Christ crucified is necessary and only in his death do you have any hope of eternal life. 
If you believe Jesus had to die, those are some things that you believe. If you don't believe Jesus had to die, God's not real to you if he's God at all. And if he is God, he's just a, you know, a long-haired, bearded guy with a lamb on his shoulder that just wants everybody to get along. And he has no real standard for what is right, what is good, and what is just. And if he does, it doesn't apply to you. You either believe you're not sinful enough or that you can handle your own sin debt because you have enough moral capital to pay God off. You believe the cross is just a symbol that people wear and not a troubling but comforting reminder that your salvation has been paid for with an immeasurable price unattainable by you. That's what you believe. That's what you don't believe um, if you don't believe. Uh, that's what you believe if uh, you don't think Christ had to die. The next one, do you believe Christ wanted to die? If so, you trust his love and you have faith in his word because his word tells us how much he loves us and he himself is the word who became flesh. And you understand, based on what he's told us, that you trust that God treasures you as his own child. You trust that he'll never leave you and never forsake you because he's come down here while, we're down here while you were still a sinner and stuck patiently with you all the way to his own death, a death that was necessary because of your sin. He still came down here, and he's still with you. If you don't believe Christ wanted to die, you don't trust his love. And if that's not true, you might not think that you're lovable. And either he doesn't matter or you don't matter. And so let me tell you this. If that's what you believe, that you're not lovable or that you don't matter, in a loving way, not a joking blue-collar way, you need to understand, here's your sign. All you need to do is look at the cross and what he has done to come down here and to die for you, to make a way that was impossible for you but possible for an almighty God. He loves you. He's dying <coughs> for you to come to him. I need another cough drop. So here's another one. <clears throat> Do you believe you were chosen by God? If so, you believe God does the choosing, and because of his perfect love, perfect grace, and perfect justice, he must choose. You believe despite your imperfectness, your imperfections, although he doesn't need you, he wants you. You understand that for him to choose you as his adopted child, he had to choose to send his one and only son to his death, and he did. In fact, it was his good pleasure to do so. Why? Because he loves you, because he chooses you. If you don't believe God has chosen you, you don't believe that his choice matters or that, that he isn't even has a choice because his authority is not supreme above all others. You don't believe that the gospel of Christ crucified is necessary or powerful enough to be your only hope for eternal life. So what does your gospel inventory look like? How powerful is your gospel? I want to hang out for a minute on this chosen by God idea. And um, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to settle the centuries-old argument of predestination or no predestination. Uh, even amongst our leaders here at Desert Breeze, there's a, a vast difference in, in what we believe about predestination. And so I'm not up here to give you the, you know, where the church lands. 
I'm here to give you something to think about and to share with you some of where I've landed. And so before I do that, um, the implication is, is whether I can lose my salvation or not lose my salvation if I've accepted Christ. And so another thing you have to understand before we go into this is if, if you're troubled by that question, what I know, what God's word says is that I am so depraved and sinful, that stuff doesn't even cross my mind in my own sinfulness. So if I'm troubled about it, you ought to have a great assurance. But you also ought to know that if you're not troubled about it, you should be really concerned about it. And so let me go into what, what I believe is true. By predestination, I mean that God's, God has chosen you and he has not and will not change his mind because I believe that God is immutable, which means he's unchanging. Alternatively, if you believe that you're saved and you don't believe in predestination, it means that your salvation can be lost. That is because you've merely borrowed the idea of the gospel. An idea is not a fact, but only a possibility. The gospel is not an idea, but it is good news, facts about what has already been done for you through Christ. And what that means is that you are redeemed. You're purchased in full by the blood of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, as Paul preaches. To believe in the possibility of redemption is no redemption at all. Assurance that your soul has been paid for in full means that the exchange is final and your salvation cannot be lost to another idea. It is finished. Those are Christ's words on the cross. Christ for my debt, a curse for a blessing, as it says in verse 13 there in our text today. There had to have been an atonement made. There was an atonement made and it was made for you and it was made by Jesus Christ. Atonement means that all sins have been atoned for, not just the ones to date. Atonement is not a second chance. It is full, not partial. It is always not just for today. Through God's choice in our election, we are redeemed. Redemption is not partial payment. It is paid in full. Assurance is 100% sure. You guys ever watch the movie Dumb and Dumber? Lloyd Christmas, he's infatuated with this girl. He finds her luggage and he's bringing it to her and he's just enamored by this girl. And he's not on, even on her radar. And she's out of the room and he's coming in and he's getting up his nerve. I'm going to really ask her if there's a chance between me and her. And so she comes in and he fumbles his words and he says to her, what are the chances of a gal like me and a girl like you, a man like you, what are the chances of us getting together? And she's all awkward and goes, one in a million? And he's like, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> that's not dumb, that's dumber. <laughs> right? So when we have assurance in Christ, we have to have full assurance in Christ. Also, this is an election year, right? If you watch the, uh, the debates... On TV, there was an debate a couple of weeks ago, and there were 14 people up on this stage. What are those people known as? Now, be nice. I'm not looking for any derogatory terms here. They're candidates, right? They're up there telling why they should be elected. 
We have no standing to pour before God to say why we should be elected because there's nothing good in us. Candidacy does not come with position or power. Election comes with position and power. And God has elected us. It's not a possibility, it's a position. And so these things are true based on God's word and the fact of his truth, and it's not at risk based on my own feelings or reasoning. The Galatians were doing the same thing. They had forgotten their assurance, and they had abandoned the object of their faith and added flesh to it, so they had abandoned their faith. I deny Christ my own effort of goodness if I claim even a fraction, one in a million, of my own salvation. If I do that and I call myself a Christian, I'm a Christless Christian. And so Christ crucified must be not only real to me, but real for me. And one of the things I, I want you to understand, and it's something that was revolutionary to me, is that resurrection follows crucifixion. Power comes after price. And so... The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but it's my badness. It's not my merit, but it's my misery. It's not my standing, but it's my failing. But Christ welcomes me anyways. My freedom in Christ is given to me through death, God killing my sin. And in killing my sin, I ought to be humbled enough that I could die to myself so it kills my badness too both giving me the freedom to live in Christ in a way that's not hindered by my badness and it's not hindered or based on my goodness either. And I need Christ to do both in me. I need the power of the gospel and the power of the gospel is all-encompassing. But remember what I said, that life in Christ is not perfect because evil is present. And so crucifixion has to come before resurrection. The gospel of Jesus Christ, your fill-in number five, is powerful enough to restrain the evil present in the world. But why is so much evil happening? Why doesn't, you know, why, why does it continue to grow that way? Well, Ray talked about it last week. It's the second law of thermodynamics that it all continues to spiral downward. But you know what? We have no idea that how through God's long suffering, the evil that's restrained and that you're protected from. If you knew that, you'd be laid really low. I'm sure of it. But why doesn't God just wipe it out and get rid of evil altogether? If he did, not one of us would live another day. And so the power of the gospel is strong enough to not only restrain the evil present in this world, but also to redeem us who are evil. <clears throat> and I know that there's been so many bad things that have happened to so many of you. And it's hideous, and it breaks God's heart. And you say, I can't seem to get over this or get through that. I know you can't. But the power of the gospel can give you the strength to get through it. Not around it, but by the testing of your faith to get through it because the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to reconcile the evil that has been done to you. And so evil uh, sin is our biggest and most dangerous problem, and we need to fight the evil outside of us and inside of us on a regular basis. And so whether we're proclaiming the gospel or living out the gospel, number six, successfully fighting sin and responding to opposition requi to, requires my faith 
in the power of the gospel, not my confidence in the flesh. And getting it wrong brings a curse on me and a curse on others. Sin is, is no thing to mess with. And so since sin is our biggest and most dangerous problem, the best about me, my most strongest beliefs, my most fervent resolve, my highest call, my biggest effort should be engaged through the power of the gospel to be at warfare with our sin inside of us and outside of us. Inside of us that we appeal to Christ to do something, change me, sanctify me on a daily basis. Outside of us in our relationships, the power of the gospel ought to drive me to stand and fight for the unity of others and ultimately the glory of God and not lull me into the denial of my own sin so that I sit piously and act as a commentator about other people's sin. Charles Spurgeon, um, he points out that sin is no child's play. In fact, he says, it's no child play to fight with sin. It needed the Savior's strength to tread it in the wine, all the Savior's strength to tread it in the winepress when he was here on earth, and it will take all your might and more to overcome it. He will only overcome it indeed. You will only overcome it indeed through the blood of the Lamb. So the gospel ought to do something in us. It ought to produce a countenance and a fruit and a durability and a power and a position in us that looks a particular way. So what I want to do is I want to go through Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, and talk about what that looks like, okay? Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are these? And before I say that, this word blessed doesn't mean happy, okay? We're blessed because we're counted as righteousness through Jesus Christ, and we ought to be happy about that for sure, but it's not skippity doo dah day, like I said before, that we're all gonna, always going to have a, a beautiful day. So blessed are the poor in spirit. These are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt apart from God in what Christ has done. What does it say about the poor in spirit? In Christ, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the inherent power of the gospel that ought to humble me. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. These are those who are brokenhearted over their sin, ultimately committed against a loving God. Of them it says, for they shall be comforted. There is comfort in my sorrow over my sin, and repentance is sweet because the power of the gospel brings life out of death. Blessed are the meek. These are those who understand the power of the gospel they have. They live in confidence with it, but with humility under it. Of them it says, for they shall inherit the earth. earth. <coughs> with an inheritance, there's great assurance found in the power of the gospel that, it's, that produces a humble confidence because I know my future is secure and my, presence is, my present is manageable because I have all I need in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and they long for more. But they have also tasted and seen that the world only offers bitter substitutes. It says of them, for they shall be satisfied. This isn't a little satisfy, satisfaction that'll just get you by until dinner. This is an ongoing, overwhelming satisfaction. The power of the gospel will satisfy us over and over and over again. 
producing a lesser satisfaction in me for lesser things. Blessed are the merciful. These are those who have seen the magnitude of the mercy that they've been given to them. And they're merciful to others from an overflow of it. For them, it says, for they shall receive mercy. And again, this is over and over and over again. This is the continuing mercy offered in the never-ending power of the gospel. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. These are those who have been given a new heart and a new spirit by God. You can read about that in Ezekiel 36. It says, for they shall see God. God's going to show up in your life when you're pure in heart, solely devoted to him. God's glory is seen in the power of the gospel that transforms hearts and lives for God's glory and our good. It's amazing. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. These are those who bring to life the ministry of reconciliation between sinners and Christ by sharing the power of the gospel because they themselves have experienced the power of the gospel. Of them, it says, for they shall be called sons of God. The power of the gospel is shown in us when we emulate the Son of God because in Christ we are all sons and daughters of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are not victims of badness, but victors in suffering for the goodness of the God they worship. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The power of the gospel sustains those who suffer the battle of fighting the good fight of faith by faith. Verse 11 and 12, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are those who fight the good fight and show an enduring power of the gospel under all kinds of evil and in, in, in their fight. But they don't so much rejoice in the destruction of their opposition but they rejoice in the salvation and reward that is theirs in Christ. So our last fill-in, the power of the gospel is found in recognizing my own weakness and being crucified with Christ. Sometimes we get in this, this track, this rut, and a rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out that says that I gotta keep up. Got to keep up with the Joneses. I got to accumulate stuff. Got to have enough. Got to have my security all taken care of. Got to knock off some things on my bucket list before I die. And when things don't go according to our plan, we immediately go to and hang out in something's wrong. And even if something really bad happens, like, like illness or the loss of a loved one, a loss of a job or a home, those are horrible things. And even in those things, when we say something's wrong, God's not watching, he's not paying attention, we don't understand the power of the gospel and we don't understand the power of biblical opportunity. God's done some miraculous things in many people's lives here and he continues to do so. And we can boast about his goodness in those things, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he's got things to boast about, but he refrains from it. Why? 
so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He wants to make sure that people know that the hero of his life, any success or goodness that he has is in Christ. And Paul's not the hero, but Jesus is the hero. But Paul understands his own propensity, his own uh, ability to be a sinner. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn has been placed in my flesh, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So he's so sure that God's doing something in him that he's okay with this trial, that even Satan is the messenger from God to do something uh, that's kind of hard for them. And it is hard because he says three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he should, that it should leave me. But he said God responds in a particular way. What does he say? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God doesn't turn to Paul and say, flesh up, boy. <coughs> I gave you what you need in your own humanness. No, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Not suck it up, I'm busy, do with what you, I've given you. But my grace is sufficient for you because it's way more than you'll ever need for anything that you go through in your life. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. As I said before, I get, um, I struggle with this kind of stuff all the time. I'm human just like all of you are. And uh, sometimes God when I get fleshy, God taps me on the shoulder. Scotty. Scotty. Reuben Scott Famelli. Wake up. Don't be foolish. Understand what I've given you in Christ. And that's my hope and prayer for every single one of us, that we would be staggered by the beauty and power that we have in Jesus Christ and we would learn to live in faith with that truth in our hearts projected out in our lives, not through our goodness, but through God's goodness and his power. I pray that we can all do that and be able to, along with Paul, to be able to say, as it says in verse 14, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us, the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? God, your word is powerful. Your grace is sufficient. But it's not to be minimized by human words, God. It's sufficient because it's way more than we need. God, help us to understand what it means that Christ had to die. But help us to know that in your love that he wanted to die. Help us to know that, God, you have chosen us in Christ Show us the powerful of the gospel in your word and in our worship and in our walk. Help us to be crucified with Christ and, and in that that we find our freedom. Help us to understand what you mean when you say, for freedom Christ has set us free, that we might stand firm and not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We're humbled before you, God, and we're desperate for you. So we cry out now and tomorrow and forevermore.
for your grace and your mercy and your love and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great weekend.